Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, negotiations over health transfers break down. We're going to be there with more money, but we are going to make sure that that money actually delivers. The Prime Minister is offering cash with conditions as health ministers huddle in B.C. But even before the meeting ended, Canada's Premier said no progress was achieved. We'll get the latest from Vancouver. Then, America votes. You got some great people to vote for. And this is going to be a very important election, I think. And, uh, hopefully the right thing will happen. Polls are closing in just a matter of hours for those crucial midterm elections. We break down the battlegrounds with full team coverage across the border. Plus, public support for the Emergencies Act and actions on it. As the inquiry into the government's use of the Emergencies Act continues, exclusive new polling for CTV News finds most Canadians think the act was necessary. We'll dig into today's testimony with the former Ontario Provincial Police Commissioner and CTV News Public Safety Analyst, Chris Lewis. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. Well, the face-off over health care funding could be coming to a head in B.C. Health ministers from all 13 provinces and territories are meeting with their federal counterpart, trying to get a deal done. But the ask is simple, significant, and as ministers say, essential to fix the health care system in this country. Provinces and territories are looking for a boost to the federal health transfer. They want the feds to increase their share of health care costs from 22% to 35%, and they want that level of funding to be maintained going forward. The Prime Minister Trudeau says his government is willing to put more money on the table, but only if provinces and territories agree to some conditions. Have a listen. I think citizens of provinces that see uh, provincial governments saying that they, they don't have any more money to invest in health care, and therefore they need uh, money from the federal government, while at the same time they turn around and give tax breaks to the wealthiest, uh, those citizens can ask themselves some questions. But from a federal perspective, we're going to be there with more money. But we are going to make sure that that money actually delivers the kinds of results that people here in New Brunswick and across the country actually deserve. The provincial and territorial health ministers are scheduled to hold a news conference with their federal counterpart, Jean-Yves Duclos, later this hour. We will bring that to you when it begins, but there's also a risk that it doesn't happen. Provincial and territorial leaders have already signaled talks are stalled. In a press release sent just a couple of hours ago by the Council of the Federation, which makes up all 13 premiers, their headline reads, quote, no progress achieved with the federal government to ensure sustainable health care funding. The news release goes on to say, quote, premiers are disappointed with the lack of a federal response on the critical issue of sustainable health funding. So will the provinces and territories leave today's meeting empty handed? We've got CTV News Vancouver's Ben Milger covering these crucial meetings in Vancouver. Ben, thank you so much for being with us. Now, you've been speaking to people there. Are you getting a sense that things have fallen apart between the provinces and the federal government? 
Mike, to say that talks here have gone off the rails might be a bit of an understatement. When we all left here after yesterday's news conference, there was a sense of optimism among the health ministers from the provinces and territories as they were getting ready to have dinner with the federal health minister who had just released a statement yesterday saying that the feds are willing to increase the Canada health transfer, uh, provided the provinces and territories were willing to agree to a couple of points. Uh, fast forward uh, just 24 hours and here we are as you mentioned the Council of the Federation even before the meetings were over putting out a news release saying that talks had gone nowhere and then just a few moments ago a spin doctor for the federal health minister uh, came out and did a little briefing uh, for the assembled media here quickly followed uh, by one of uh, BC health minister Adrian Dix uh, uh, communications people who uh, gave a slightly different spin on exactly where things have fallen apart here but the bottom line is there was a great deal of optimism yesterday going into today about the possibility that we may hear about an increase in the Canada health transfer uh, and that is definitely not going to be the case today. So interesting to see how they were both trying to basically spin you there and give you an idea of what their two positions are. What are you seeing as those sort of hard lines that are emerging from these talks? Yeah, there are two items here on the agenda that uh, uh, both of those uh, men pointed out to us as areas where progress was not made. Uh, one of them is uh, health human resources. Uh, the feds want the uh, provincial ministers to uh, take stock of uh, the human resources crisis that is unfolding in so many uh, uh, provincial health authorities across the country. Uh, and they wanted uh, the provinces to approve a, a pan-Canadian action plan. Uh, what we heard uh, uh, from uh, Minister Dick's people is that each of the provinces already has a robust plan uh, that is suited to the specific needs of their own provinces and territories. Uh, and and that is why they did not want to approve a, a pan-Canadian action plan, uh, essentially saying, you know, what works in British Columbia uh, is not a blueprint for success in Prince Edward Island, uh, what would have different needs. Uh, so that was one of the sticking points. Uh, and the other one was on uh, digital health and health data. That was one of the points uh, that uh, Minister Duclos mentioned yesterday as a, a condition of uh, an increase in the Canada health transfer. Um, there, uh, what we heard from his deputy today was that uh, the provinces were not willing to agree to that uh, unless uh, the feds came to the table with an offer of an increase to the Canada health transfer. Uh, and apparently the feds are not prepared to discuss money uh, until they have finalized uh, a plan for sharing digital health uh, and health data. Uh, so those are two sticking points uh, that it appears no progress has been made on. Uh, and, and that is why we are not getting an announcement today on any increase in the Canada health transfer. CTV News' Ben Milger watching those crucial talks over healthcare funding transfers. Thank you for this, Ben. Appreciate it. So that's an update on what the politicians are up to right now. But how are medical professionals feeling about the health minister's standoff? Let's bring in our panel of provincial medical associations. First, we've got Dr. Rose Zacharias, president of the Ontario Medical Association, and president of Doctors Nova Scotia is Dr. Leisha Hawker. Thank you both for joining us, doctors. First, Dr. Zacharias, your organization supports the provincial call for more federal health care funding. What's at stake here? Absolutely. Well, we are in a system of crisis. Our healthcare system is overwhelmed after dealing with a global pandemic. We are dealing with doctor and nursing shortages. Our hospitals are in a state of overwhelm. Our emergency departments have closed. 
one after the other over these last six months. And, uh, and we know that uh, physicians are experiencing burnout. These are our healthcare providers that have been on the front lines 24-7. We do have solutions to implement at this time, and we are committed to working with government to see some positive change so that we can deliver as doctors the patient care that we know they need. Dr. Hawker, what would more federal dollars mean for your province? And, you know, I mean, picking up on what Dr. Dr. Zacharias was saying, I mean, it feels like the answers are sitting there, but everybody is just sort of waiting for more money. Yeah, we're having all the same issues in Nova Scotia that Dr. Zacharias had mentioned, but we also have uh, an aging population. So compared to nationally, uh, a 17% rate of seniors in Nova Scotia, we have close to 20% of our Nova Scotians are 65 years and older. And so we're seeing more and more complex care needs. And we also have an aging physician workforce. So about a quarter of our family doctors are, are above the age of 60 and, and probably looking to retire in the next decade or so. And many of those physicians are primary care providers and we really need to strengthen our primary health care system in Nova Scotia. It's the foundation of our health care system and it's one of the reasons uh, why we're in such a crisis right now. Uh, Dr. Zacharias, the Trudeau government is offering to increase that funding, but it's really cash with conditions. Do you agree with that sort of provision that the federal government wants to put in there? So we do need to understand more details about what those provisions uh, are. However, accountability seems reasonable. We do have some of the same aims, of course. We want to deal with the surgical backlog. Over a million patient surgeries are sitting in the queue waiting to be done. Our wait times have been an issue since before the pandemic. We have in Ontario well over a million people who don't have a family doctor. And uh, we need investments in community, palliative care, home care. It actually costs a lot less money uh, for the same quality of care delivered to a patient in their home than in an acute care bed in the hospital. And our hospitals are backed up and our emergency departments are overwhelmed. And so we need the investment and we're committed to working with government to see that they are, uh, that those funds are implemented strategically in order to uh, improve the care that people are needing. Dr. Hawker, just uh, in closing with you, when the healthcare systems are facing such a crisis as uh, both you and your colleague here have described, how does it make you feel to see politicians squabble over spending? Well, I think it's important that we all come together right now. I think we all have the same goals and there's considerable similarity and challenges across the country and, and also similarity and alignment in our goals. I think if we all focus essentially on primary care too, We'll have better outcomes and it will be more equitable and more cost effective as well. Dr. Rose Zacharias, Dr. Alicia Hawker, thank you both for joining us today. I appreciate it. We're going to head south now and who controls the U.S. Congress and Senate will be decided by the votes cast today across America. And let's be clear, this election is not a referendum, it's a choice. It's a choice between two very different visions of America. This is the year we're going to take back the House, we're going to take back the Senate, and we're going to take back America. There are a number of states in play with a number of issues shaping how our neighbors to the South are making their choice. Inflation is at a 40-year high. Abortion is back on the ballot with the U.S. Supreme Court 
controversial decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, but many are framing this as being a fight over democracy, the democracy itself. It's the first major federal election since 2020 and after the insurrection on Capitol Hill. So how do these final hours at the polls set the stage? Let's bring in our reporters. Joining me now are CTV National News Washington Bureau Chief Joy Malbin, CTV News Washington Bureau Correspondent Richard Madden, and CTV News Los Angeles Bureau Chief Tom Walters. Thank you all for being back with us, Joy. We're going to start with you again. Joe Biden has been on the campaign trail trying to rally votes for the Democratic candidates. If they lose control of the House, what does that mean for the Biden administration? Well, get ready, America. You're going to see a slew of investigations uh, into Biden's family, his son, Hunter Biden, uh, possibly the withdrawal of Afghanistan and the debacle there. Uh, you're going to see political gridlock. Uh, you're going to see uh, paralysis on, on Capitol Hill. And what you're also going to see is a dooming of Joe Biden's agenda. He had big plans uh, to bring in some kind of nationwide abortion uh, legislation. Uh, he wanted to do things for climate change. And it also puts financial assistance to Ukraine on the chopping block. Republicans have already served notice that uh, uh, there's not going to be, quote, a blank check for Ukraine. So a lot of this, uh, for the next two years of his presidency, he becomes what's known down here as a lame duck. Richard, you're in Georgia. A lot at stake for both the Democrats and Republicans when it comes to the Senate. What are you hearing on the ground right now? Yeah, Georgia is a pivotal state uh, this election cycle, just like it was in 2020 when this state elected two Democrats to the Senate, and that gave the Democrats that razor-thin majority in the last Congress. But this is a whole new ball game, where the two in, the two candidates running for the Senate, a former football star and a reverend, uh, are in a very tight race. Herschel Walker is a very well-known football player here in the state of Georgia, uh, and he's up against Democratic incumbent. Uh, uh, Raphael Warnock, uh, who is really facing some economic and political headwinds uh, by voters here in Georgia. There were two contrasting messages going into this campaign. The Democrats really seized on the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court, which you mentioned, uh, and they also campaigned on protecting democracy. Republicans, meantime, really hammered home that message, uh, tapping into that economic anxiety, runaway inflation, the rising costs of just about everything. They've been flooding the airwaves with attack ads, and it appears, according to polls anyhow, that Americans are voting with their wallets and they are tilting towards the Republican side. So what happens here in Georgia in the Senate could really determine which party controls uh, that chamber. So we're watching things very closely, including some important down-ballot uh, voting for the race for governor where Brian Kemp, who famously bucked a pressure by former President Trump to overturn the 2020 election is expected to cruise to a second term here tonight. But there's a lot at stake here in Georgia. So far, advanced polls uh, show that two and a half million Georgia voters have already voted, which suggests enthusiasm is high in this very pivotal state. Amazing. Thank you, Richard. We'll go to Tom Walters now in Marana, Arizona, where some of the key Republican candidates have close ties to former President Donald Trump. How has that shaped the race there, Tom? Well, it's shaped both the uh, national and the uh, state races here. On the state side, you've got uh, candidates for the Republicans who are really fully on board with some of Donald Trump's conspiracy theories about the 2020 election. As far as the, the way the Trump uh, presence affects 
uh, the Senate race here, which, uh, like the one Richard's watching in Georgia, is absolutely pivotal. Uh, we've got a Democratic incumbent here, former astronaut Mark Kelly. If he loses that by itself, could be enough to tip the balance in the Senate. Um, and the, the polling shows a margin that is simply too close to call. Uh, where Trump's name has, has certainly uh, played into this election is uh, in this state is on the border. Arizona, border state, there's the unfinished Trump wall, a lot of support here for more security on the border. Um, in uh, Yuma County, where we were a couple of days ago, uh, there's been about a 170% increase in the number of people intercepted crossing the border illegally. So there's enough support for more security on the border, for the completion of the Trump wall, if you will, that even Kelly, the Democrat, has had to effectively campaign against the positions of the Biden administration. Joey, I've only got about 30 seconds or so, but speaking of Donald Trump, he's teasing a major announcement coming next week. How worried is the Biden administration about a Trump run in 2024? Well, if they're worried, they're not letting on, that's for sure. But uh, last night, forget the midterms, it felt more like 2024, the presidential election. Yeah, Joe Biden saying, look, there, these are two visions of, of the country you've got to choose. This is a choice, not a referendum on me and my policies. And you got Donald Trump teasing, teasing, teasing uh, and suggesting, I got a big announcement on November 15th. In fact, he's already lashing out at one of his chief rivals, Ron DeSantis, the governor in Florida, saying if he runs, He'll do badly. Here we go again. Here we go again, indeed. Joy Malbin, Richard Madden, Tom Walters, thank you all for joining us once again. Make sure that you join them all night tonight, CTV News Channel. They will have special coverage of the U.S. midterm election results. It starts right here immediately after Power Play. And we've got some very exciting news of our own to share with you today. Award-winning journalist Vashi Kapelos has been named chief political correspondent for CTV News. She will also be the new host of this show. In addition to PowerPlay, Vash will host CTV's weekly political program, Question Period. She'll also be hosting the all-new radio program, aptly named The Vashi Capello Show, airing weekday afternoons across the RA Heart Canada talk show network stations. A familiar face to Canadians, Vashi has extensive experience covering federal and provincial politics in Canada. I can say I've worked with Vashi for years, and she is a personal and professional friend. We've worked on those levels, and I'm thrilled to have her join this amazing team here in Ottawa. Still to come, while the inquiry into the Emergencies Act continues, new exclusive polling from Nanos Research and CTV News reveals if Canadians think the act was or was not needed. CTV News public safety analyst Chris Lewis digs into the latest from the inquiry and that polling next here on PowerPlay. The inquiry into the government's use of the Emergencies Act won't hear from Premier Doug Ford, but we are getting new insight into the behind-the-scenes conversations between the Premier and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. ...of the February 9th conversation between the two leaders was submitted to the Commission. In it, Trudeau tells Ford that the Premier shouldn't need more legal tools to clear the bridge protest in Windsor, which was costing the economy millions of dollars per day. In an attempt to reassure the Prime Minister, Ford used some language that some viewers may find disturbing to say that the Ontario Provincial Police were going to clear the protest. Ford said, quote, 
This is critical. I hear you. I'll be up there expletive with a wire brush. End quote. All of that comes as we're getting new exclusive polling from Nanos Research on what Canadians think about the use of the Emergencies Act. The poll was done for CTV News. Have a look at some of these numbers. The poll found that about one in two Canadians believe it was necessary or somewhat necessary to get the convoy under control. So what does that so what does that phone call between the Ontario Premier and the Prime Minister reveal about the political response to the convoy? Let's find out. Joining me now is CTV News public safety analyst and former OPP Commissioner Chris Lewis. Chris, thanks for joining us today. So the inquiry won't hear from Doug Ford directly, but that readout we just shared does offer some insight into the federal and provincial response. I wanted to ask you about the Prime Minister's assertion that the police shouldn't need more legal tools to clear the Ambassador Bridge blockade. Did the police have everything they needed at that time? Well, they did. And in fact, they cleared that blockade without the Emergencies Act because it didn't come into uh, effect until the day after they cleared it. And so what they needed in Windsor was a plan. And they got they had a plan put together. They needed enough resources. The OPP provided that and some other departments as well. And they executed the plan. And uh, so, you know, the, the uh, commissioner of the OPP and many other uh, people that were involved from a leadership perspective at the time all said we didn't need more legislation. It helped without a doubt, but we didn't need it. We had existing powers under existing laws. We just needed to get the people in place to do it. And that's what happened. Now, we've also seen this very clear comparison between the police response in Ottawa and the one in Windsor. Was it simply a case that all other police forces learned from Ottawa's mistakes? Well, for sure. I mean, we always learn from one another, the good and the bad, and and sometimes the ugly in terms of major incidents, uh, big investigations, protests, etc. There's always that dialogue and the debriefing process among those involved. But in the case of watching what went down in Ottawa, which in fairness was way different and way more complex with 500-plus trucks, in the downtown core rather than what occurred in Windsor. Windsor wasn't easy either. It had its certain nuances that made it difficult, uh, but it was done first. And then all those resources and many more went to Ottawa, of course, and subsequently uh, reacted and did what was necessary in Ottawa. They didn't have enough resources at the front end. And frankly, they didn't have a good plan at the front end to try and stop that thing from becoming entrenched. So, all the stars aligned. Once Windsor was done, Coots, Alberta was done. They got all the resources from the RCP and OPP in Ottawa. They had a proper plan that was developed by a joint team of police leaders and experts in their field, and they executed the plan. That would have happened regardless of the Emergencies Act, but the Emergencies Act certainly helped in terms of towing and a few other details. I wanted to ask you about that specific poll and just a a quick uh, precision here. I wanted to make sure that people understand uh, that it said two out of three or sort of two thirds of Canadians believed that the Emergencies Act was necessary. What do you think about that public perception? Well, the public perception is what it is. And and the general public wouldn't understand why wasn't there enough police there to handle this in the front end. Well, that was an Ottawa police decision around trying to get enough resources in what they needed based on their assessment that the protest wasn't going to be around for a few days, more than a few days. Well, we all know now that was never the intention, and they became deeply entrenched in the city. So when the resources all finally showed in Ottawa to deal with a proper plan, 
the, the general public assumes that came as a result of the Emergencies Act. The law came into effect. All of a sudden, there's thousands of police officers there, and they, they fix the situation. So they're confusing the two, and, and I don't blame them. That, it makes sense that they would think that way. But the reality is those officers were all on the way, should have been there weeks prior, but the planning wasn't done properly and, and mistakes were made. And so be it. They always are. And I've made many mistakes in operational leadership roles as well. So not to throw stones, but that's the reality. But the general person out there, the board, wouldn't understand all those little nuances. Former Ontario Provincial Police Commissioner and CTV Public Safety Analyst Chris Lewis, thanks so much for joining us, Chris. Now, here is some other news you need to know. The Ontario government and the union representing education workers are back at the bargaining table. I've heard QP say we need to invest more in lower-income workers. I couldn't agree more. So today, we're back at the table. And while I can't get into details, we're back at the table with an improved offer, particularly for the lower-income workers. Premier Doug Ford says he's putting up more funding for workers. And on Monday, he'll start the process of repealing that back-to-work legislation, which made strike action by workers illegal. Schools across the province did reopen today. Many had been forced to close when education workers walked off the job in protest of the Ford government's move to shut down their strike last Friday. FIFA is dealing with some controversy today, days before Canada is set to help kick off the World Cup in Qatar. There was a small protest in Zurich today following some comments made by host country Qatar's World Cup ambassador. Yesterday, the official Qatari World Cup ambassador said that being gay is a sin and that LGBT plus people are mentally ill. Protesters gathered in front of the FIFA museum today to press for LGBT plus rights. In Qatar, the protest followed an interview with a German broadcaster in which the ambassador said that homosexuality was, quote, damage in the mind. Justin Trudeau is making a special appearance on Canada's drag race. Please help me welcome the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau! <laughs> this one is about to go down in history. Prime Minister will appear on Canada's drag race, Canada versus the World. He will become the first world leader to appear on the franchise. The series premieres on Crave later this month. Crave is a subscription-based streaming service owned by Mel Media and CTV News. is also a division of Bell Media. Still to come, a crucial by-election in Alberta. You don't often hear that, but this one is for the premier's seat in the legislature. What's at stake for Daniel Smith? head west and talk to Alberta Bureau Chief Bill Fortier when PowerPlay returns. Now we all know there are no guarantees in life, but especially in politics. Now in Alberta, Danielle Smith is running in a by-election that would give the Premier a seat in the legislature. It should be a slam dunk in that last provincial election UCP candidate won with more than 60% of the vote. But that was 2019, and these are very different times in Alberta. Talk more about that. Let's bring in CTV News' Alberta Bureau Chief Bill Fortier. He's in Edmonton. Bill, should be an easy win, but it's not guaranteed. How big of a win does Danielle Smith need to have in order to really send a message here? 
You know, I think her team's probably looking, Mike, for a pretty big win. I mean, remember, Danielle Smith was put into this position as premier, not by the general electorate, but by her party, right? She won the leadership vote uh, a couple months back. And so, you know, this is really her first chance since to answer to the general electorate. We know that UC, the UCP membership wants her as premier. You know, now we find out, does, you know, the general electorate want her as premier? This this is a very small consti uh, constituency, about 34,000 voters in Brooks Medicine Hat. And traditionally, it has been, as you mentioned, a very conservative one. So this is really a look at whether a small percentage of the you know, conservative base of Alberta wants her as as the leader of the party and as premier. Uh, you know, there is some competition. She's up against a, a former mayor of Medicine Hat who's running for the Alberta party, uh, currently a, a party that doesn't have seats in the legislature. But, um, you know, so we'll see how it, how it goes down. But the expectation, certainly, I think, among her team is that she wins tonight in a big way. You're talking about answering to the general electorate. There's also a part of this which is answering to the media. And you were saying to me earlier today, the media is already being told they won't be allowed at her event after results come in. Is there a battle brewing now with journalists? You know, I hope not. Um, you know, for the good of communication between the Premier's office and journalists here in Alberta, um, I think that she has a complicated relationship with journalists. Um, you know, she's been vocally critical of journalists and, you know, the media since she became premier, even though a short time ago she was part of the media. She was a, a radio host, you know. She's been critical of the way stories are selected uh, and, and that the, the more controversial things she said uh, seem to be honed in on by journalists. Um, you know, and of course, her own swearing-in ceremony, we weren't allowed to attend. Uh, the swearing-in of her cabinet, we weren't allowed to attend. Uh, you know, in 15 years covering uh, politics in this province, I've never seen that. And certainly there are members of the Alberta Press Gallery who go back way farther than me. And, you know, I remember chatting with them, and they, they believe it's unprecedented as far as they know for journalists not to cover these things. You know, on the other side of the coin, though, Danielle Smith has had press conferences where, especially her first one as premier, where she's uh, stayed on for a long time and taken all the questions that came her way and, I believe, tried to answer those questions. So she has shown, you know, that she is uh, sort of a willingness to be accessible to journalists at times when it suits her. And other times she seems somewhat standoffish to media. So, as you mentioned, apparently journalists not invited to any uh, a presumed victory speech tonight. Um, but, you know, potentially they, we've been told by the party uh, or by, by her team, actually, that she'll provide a statement or perhaps audio. As you know, Mike, not the same as letting journalists be yeah. there to observe it ourselves and potentially to get questions in. But, uh, you know, we'll see how this goes down tonight. Well, let's hope it's the exception. CTV News Alberta Bureau Chief Bill Fortier. Thanks for this, Bill. Coming up, the cost of climate change in Canada. As countries gather up COP27 in Egypt, the parliamentary budget officer says this country, climate change is hurting the economy already. PBO himself, Yves Giroud, joins the press gallery next to break it all down on PowerPlay. As the world descends on Egypt for this year's COP27 climate change conference, Canada's parliamentary budget watchdog released a new report detailing climate change's long-term impacts on the Canadian economy. The report found that Canada's real GDP fell by 0.8% in 2021 due to rising temperatures 
and precipitation since the early 1980s. 0.8% amounts to about $20 billion out of the Canadian economy. By the end of the century, well, the PBO projects an additional reduction of 5.8%. As Canada tightens its purse strings to head off a looming recession, can the government afford to stay the course on its climate policies? Let's bring in the press gallery to weigh in. We have Joyce Napier. She is Napier. She is CTV National News, our Ottawa Bureau Chief, Bob Fife from the Globe and Mail, also the Bureau Chief here in Ottawa. And our special guest is Parliamentary Budget Officer, Yves Giroux. Thank you all for being here. I guess the first question to you, Mr. Giroux, I mean, what are the real impacts of this through the more extreme weather events that we're seeing now? Um, And, you know, this measure of it, where are the sectors that are more acutely impacted by them? Well, the impacts will be felt, are starting to be felt across the economy, but the sectors that will be most affected are those that are more exposed to weather events, unsurprisingly. One can think about the agricultural sector, which could benefit from a longer growing season, but also energy use, generally speaking. We may need more energy use in the summer, lower energy intensity during the winter if temperatures are higher, but also uh, climate-dependent activities such as tourism and uh, ski resort, for example, but also um, buildings may need to be, um, which are exposed to elements, will be suffering. So, uh, And also uh, productivity could be impacted, especially during summer months, by higher temperatures. So this is, these are, are all the elements that we have taken into account in our reports to get to a, a negative impact of 5.8% of GDP by the end of the century. Significant. And Joyce, we just had the full economic statement. They just earmarked about a billion dollars for Hurricane Fiona relief. Should we expect this to become a trend, that now we're going to start to see this in, in budgets on a yearly basis? Oh, yes, I think we will see it in federal budgets, but people will see it in their own budgets as well. Uh, so we're thinking of droughts, we're thinking of floods mm-hmm. and, 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 and huge fires. Um, and insurance companies are not, uh, are not stepping up, so governments will have to step up. If you are in a flood, uh, in a floodplain, if your house is built there, because until recently you didn't know that. Uh, this information was not released to people. So it is going to become more and more costly. And as it becomes more costly, um, the political debate will become, you know, sort of more bitter. You've got on one, on the one hand, the, the conservatives uh, who are against, for instance, the yeah. carbon tax to change people's habits. You have the liberals, you know, sort of trying to impose that as the cost of living increases. So climate is becoming a political football. Yeah, Bob, pick up on that a little bit because you have the conservatives who keep sort of banging that drum of saying that the carbon tax has to be uh, at least given a, a bit of a holiday for Canadians because of the cost of living. living. But now with these uh, numbers that we're seeing, it's coming at a real economic cost to the country. So how, what's the political balance here? Well, I mean, the conservatives have been, under from Stephen Harper on, have been against any kind of serious climate change policies. They've put forward issues dealing with regulations, which were somewhat somewhat successful, but they never really uh, seriously addressed the issue of how we can deal with cl- uh, climate change. Mm-hmm. The Liberals have, although they certainly, their rhetoric is far better than their accomplishments, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. But, I mean, look, the issue of flooding and drought and all of these things are going to only increase. You know, 
but the problem we have is you 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 haven't you can't get countries like China and India right. to seriously deal with climate change. They are the ones for principally responsible. China's thirty percent of greenhouse gas emissions. They're, bur they're I think they're they're uh, burning so much coal now. And we've got to, the world's got to get together as they did in, in, in Paris to, to figure out ways to get green technology and, and frankly, to use more natural gas rather right. than burning coal. So, uh, yeah, I, I was going to say, Mr. Giroux, how key is that? And also to unlocking some of the potential that we're seeing within Canada here to go in that direction. Well, it will clearly be key because in our report, we have made the assumption that all the countries that have made pledges, for example, to reach net zero by 2050 or somewhere in the middle of the century, they will deliver on that on time and in full. So, and that's with all these, uh, these assumptions that we get to a negative impact of 5.8% of GDP. So if countries don't deliver on their pledges, then the impact of climate change will be even more expensive on the Canadian economy, but also on other economies across the world. Well, so it is. They're not going to be able to deliver on the pledges because of what's happening in Ukraine and yeah. Russia. That's that's one very very important point. Yeah. And 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 but at the same time, while that pressure is happening, Bob, you have COP twenty seven going on. The prime minister is not going. You see, sending Stephen Gilbert. Is that an indication of where Canada is with its commitments and what it's able to bring to the table that the prime minister is not going? Well, I mean, has Canada even met any of its commitments no. um, and any of its targets, right? And it's, no it's again. <laughs> a, it's a really hard thing to do um, to meet those targets and plus to get people on board because they're thinking, as, as Bob was saying, well, we're not really responsible for this. So why do we have to pay the price? Right. So it's hard to get people on board. It's hard to get companies on board. And, you know, ac across the country, we disagree. Uh, obviously, the West disagrees with Ottawa's policies on it. So, you know... Putting people, getting people together in one country, just one country, to agree on a policy is hard enough. Imagine the rest of the world. So and look at the, and the United States. I mean, they're going, Republicans want to get back control right. of the House, maybe of the Senate. They're going to gut anything that to do with, yeah. with climate change. They don't care. So what does that mean for COP27 and Bob? I mean, does it have any hope in, in actually, you know, and this is maybe too, yeah. too big before, of a question. Before Ukraine... Possibly there would have been more, right. uh, but now we've got, you know, Russia's cut off energy to Europe. Yeah. Europe's are now burning coal. Um, you know, China doesn't seem to care anymore. Should even though their people are, if you, if you go to China, I mean, no. you can't breathe. Right. Uh, but, but for some reason, they're still not doing very much about it. So it makes, I mean, I feel fear for our children, frankly, because uh, the climate is our climate is burning up. And there isn't a willingness. You, you can't deal with climate change unless you have the United States, India, China, and some of the um, other Asian countries, which are really burning a lot of coal, to get together and get serious about this. So, Mr. Giroux, is the key then to put an economic price on it so that everybody understands it? Well, that's a, that's a good question. And that's in part why we are releasing this report today to put that information out there so that parliamentarians and Canadians have at least an idea of the order of magnitude of the cost, potential costs of climate change. And as I said, our assumptions are that all the pledges are met in full and on time. And if they are not delivered on, then the cost will be even higher. So that's why we are putting that 
such numbers and a report like that with all its assumptions so that Canadians can have that debate. How much do you hope it breaks through the noise? I know every one of your reports you hope gets traction, but I mean this one especially because, uh, you know, to, to Bob's point, we worry about our children and grandchildren here. Well, I'm hopeful that people will get, will focus on that because in briefings today, this is one of the reports that has gathered the most attention on its first day of release. So I am hopeful that people are turning their attention to climate change, to its impacts, to the consequences, and to the costs, as well as potentially the costs of inaction. Yeah, and as we continue to wait now for health ministers in BC, we're going to continue the conversation a little bit here. Um, Joyce, but is that sort of the key now, to continue putting it in the window, that this is going to cost you financially if you do not take care of the environment? Absolutely, and, and I do believe that people were interested in it, but it's hard to have people wrap their brain around the fact that what you pay today is nothing compared to what it will cost tomorrow. And that is a concept that people just don't grasp, right? It's, it's not costing me anything today. Why do I have to put out money? Why does it have to cost right. me? Why do I have to pay a carbon tax? Why, why, why today? But the reason why we're doing that today or we should be doing that today is because the cost tomorrow will be immense. Uh, but, it, but how can you sell that as a politician or as political parties? It's something that's very difficult to sell to people say, okay, we've got to make sacrifices right. today because this is what could happen tomorrow. And this is how much it will happen to cost tomorrow as opposed to the, the, what it's costing us today. Better if we do it today will be cheaper than if we wait another 10 years or five years or whatever. But, but it's, it's a hard concept for politicians to, to, to sell to, to, uh, to uh, people and to taxpayers. Yeah, we're continuing to watch for this press conference to start. So, Bob, I'm just going to ask you very quickly here in, term of that, in terms of that, is it that issue now that there's too much on the plate right now? Ukraine, cost of living, inflation, everything. So is this the type of thing right now where we go, well... well I mean, there is, we, there is some reason to be somewhat optimistic. I mean, we, because of Ukraine, you've seen the Europeans saying, look, we have got to move much quicker in terms of green technology. You saw the president of the Sorry, United Bob, States gotta, do that I, too. I apologize, i got to cut yeah. you off. We're yeah. going right to that press conference now. Adrian Dix, the BC health minister. Ministre de la Santé, cette fois-ci, fédéral et provinciaux. Les discussions d'aujourd'hui ont porté sur nombreux aspects du système de santé publique. Nous sommes à un moment fondamental en termes uh, and train and retain professionals of health. Um, today we had, um, as yesterday, significant discussions about that touched on um, many aspects of our public health care system. We focused on the health workforce crisis and the efforts being made in every jurisdiction, already announced, already established in terms of the source of money that would come forward in every jurisdiction to support health human resources, the staff, the doctors, the nurses, the health sciences professionals, the healthcare workers we need in the future. We also discussed digital health and health data, public health priority areas, and applying lessons learned from the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, mental health and substance use services, including efforts to, uh, to address uh, the opioid overdose crisis in many of our communities and our provinces. Uh, the significant effort made in these areas 
is something that I think we need to emphasize. And there are examples in every single jurisdiction. Decisions to open multiple new medical schools and thousands of new nursing spaces by provincial governments committed not for a year, not for five years, but long into the future to fundamental change in the way that we fund public health care. Decisions such as the one we made in BC last Monday in agreement with the doctors of BC to fundamentally transform primary care. The efforts in every jurisdiction to improve standards and the quality of life in long-term care, to focus on community care, to address the fundamental questions around mental health and addictions. These were the subject of our work. This is the work we've done over the last number of days, the last two days, and it was very important to share that work with the federal government and to hear their perspectives and their support for those efforts. It was, of course, an honor to have uh, Minister Duclos and Minister Bennett here with us uh, today. I want to um, uh, thank, uh, I want to mention now, I guess, uh, the elephant in the room, or in this case, the elephant not in the room, uh, and that is, you know, where we are right now and the, and the uh, end of our discussions today. As all of you are aware, um, uh, provincial governments have been making the case for a fundamental increase in the Canada health transfer. This has been happening for a year, for a year. Provincial uh, premiers and ministers have been calling for the federal government to come to the table and have a serious discussion about the, the future of public health care. Why is this a good idea? The need is obvious everywhere, in every emergency room, in every, uh, in every primary care clinic, in every uh, ambulance service, everywhere in Canada. And we're building on what I think has been a period of extraordinary cooperation between the federal government and provincial governments and territorial governments with respect to the COVID-19 pandemic. It was our belief, certainly Premier Horgan's belief, all the Premier's belief, all the health minister's belief that this was an excellent time to act, that we had to, as we were coming out of the pandemic, as the value of public health care demonstrated its worth everywhere uh, in Canada, this was an opportunity to have this needed discussion because demand, the demand for services, which we spoke up at length yesterday in every single jurisdiction was growing and the provincial governments were making long-term fundamental investments to address especially the health human resources challenges that were both immediate, medium-term and long-term facing public health care in our country. As you know, for uh, the last year, the federal government has not um, responded to these requests for a meeting between the Prime Minister and Premiers with respect to the Canada Health Transfer. And that is disappointing, but not discouraging, because I believe the moment is so essential for public health care, so important for public health care, that we have to have this moment now and we have to continue to make the case to convince because Canadians understand its value, Canadians believe in public health care, and Canadians want us to act. Uh, yesterday, as all of you know, because you were in this room, um, we received some comments. I got a text about 12.57 yesterday after we'd had our morning meeting and just before we are going to have our news conference to suggest that the federal government was suggesting that there was more money going to be available under the Canada Health Transfer. The Prime Minister 
um, made some comments yesterday. He made some more today, reflecting uh, a number of, I suppose you could call them, views about the issue. And Minister Duclos said there would be more, uh, more money available. And they spoke of conditions and so on. Um, and uh, we responded to that in this room, I think, favorably. Not because we agreed with all of it, but because we, we saw the first signs of federal engagement on a subject that Canadians and provincial governments and territorial governments have been seeking engagement on for a year. And we're very... And that is we BC Health Minister Adrian Dix dis describing the discussions with the federal government as disappointing but not discouraging, hinting uh, at more talks to, uh, to come in the discussion with the federal government. He said the elephant in the room and really not in the room was Jean-Yves Duclos, the federal health minister, who was not side-by-side -side with him at that press conference. Um, that is uh, that press conference. We're going to have to leave it there. And that is your Power Play Day in Politics. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. Stay tuned right here. Ongoing coverage of the U.S. midterms will be continuing. We will be back here tomorrow. Until then, have a great night, everyone.